www.radio-sv.net This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Welcome to the Bible Line. For our first-time listeners, for the next hour, we'll be opening God's Word together. And if you have a particular question as you've been studying Scripture that you'd like some help on, or maybe a particular issue in your life or ministry or church life, uh, you're welcome to call us. Again, the number locally is 525-1859. We have a toll-free number, and the toll-free number is 877 877- WAGP 980. People can also email us here directly into the studio. And if you'd like to email us, uh, the email address is TBL for standing for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. If you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. We're happy to receive it however you'd like to give it to us. Well, Rick, as always, it's great to be here today. It is indeed, Pastor, and uh, we've got a number of questions that have lined up. So let's go to the first one, which comes from a community called Hoffman Estates in the state of Illinois. Okay. This uh, listener writes, I'm a believer and my husband is not. When it comes to God and praying, church, well, we always give preference to live callers, and so we have one standing by. We'll get back to that caller and just or that listener in just a second. But first, let's go to the live caller. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi. Good morning. Hi. Thanks for calling. How can we help today? Um, I have a question for you. I am reading through the Bible, and I started in the Old Testament by myself, and then. My husband and I are reading through the New Testament to, uh, in the evening together, right. and I'm I'm just finished up with Ezekiel. Uh, that's one right before is it Daniel, I believe, right? All right, Daniel Ezekiel. Okay, and so I have a question about he was giving a description of some place with like an angel was guiding him and telling him that it's. Uh, so many cubits this wide and so many cubits that wide. And yes, yeah, the Millennial so, Temple towards the end of the book, yes. And so when and where is he describing? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, there are a number of temples in Israel's history that are mentioned, and Daniel and Ezekiel are kind of in a pair. Uh, they, they minister uh, during the time of the exile. So whenever you come to an Old Testament prophet, sometimes key to understanding him is to ask the question, at what time in Israel's history did he minister? Did he minister when they were united as a kingdom and the first three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, the kingdom was united? Did he minister uh, while the kingdom was divided? And so you have some prophets who minister to the northern kingdom, some who minister to the southern kingdom, a couple that minister to both. Uh, did he minister, you know, before the exile? Did he minister during the exile or after the exile? There is some after uh, the southern kingdom Judah returned back into the land uh, that you have different prophets who minister to the people. So understanding at what time they minister really 
offers some definition and some insight, sometimes in terms of their overall message. And so we would call Ezekiel an exilic prophet. There's only two prophets who minister during the time of the exile, and that's Daniel and Ezekiel. And so he's ministering to the southern kingdom, Judah, uh, who had been carried away to Babylon. And one of the things he's trying to do is to offer them some hope that God is not finished with Israel. It appeared that they were under such severe discipline that God didn't care about him, them. And so he reminds them, no, God still loves Israel, still cares about Israel. And at the end of his prophecy, he carries them all the way into the future in terms of God's future plans for the nation of Israel concerning Messiah. And, it, and it's really an encouraging book to someone who's in exile. The book kind of divides into two big halves. The first is a, a, a message of horror and condemnation. And the second is a message of hope and consolation that starts in chapter 33 and goes here all the way to the end of the book. So uh, the second half, he's not only speaking about their return, but also to their ultimate uh, receiving of Messiah. And so, of course, the scripture teaches that there are two comings of Messiah in the Old Testament. He would come as a suffering servant. He would come as a sovereign king. He would come the first time to die. He would come the second time to reign. And of course, um, during the 400-year period between Malachi and Matthew, uh, many of the Jewish leaders became very self-righteous and didn't see their need for a savior. They wanted a sovereign who would crush Rome, but they didn't want a savior. And so he came to his own, his own received him not. And so Ezekiel looks down the corridors of time, knowing the unbelief of Israel towards uh, the first coming of Messiah. And he gives that fantastic uh, vision of what we call the, you know, the dry bones vision, where he, he sees Israel converted. And of course, this is a vision that has never happened but is going to take place during the time of the Great Tribulation, what Jeremiah uh, calls uh, the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah was a pre-exilic prophet, and he preached about the time of Jacob's trouble, looking down to the end of the time, the Great Tribulation, as it's called in the New Testament. And one of the functions of that seven-year period is to bring the people of Israel to faith in Christ. And so the dry bones vision is going to be fulfilled, and, of course, it, he goes through some of the events that will take place during the tribulation, some of the countries that will be involved in attacking Israel, like Russia and so forth. And, and then he talks about how God's Messiah will literally, physically, actually institute his kingdom on the earth. And so the Bible speaks of a kingdom where Messiah will rule and reign. Um, sovereignly. And during the millennial reign, there'll be a new temple that's built. So there's a number of temples in Israel's history. Of course, it was the Solomonic temple that Solomon built. David provided all the uh, stones, uh, but Solomon actually built the temple just as God said it would happen. Uh, That temple, of course, was ultimately destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar came down and uh, tore the temple to pieces. Um, just as God prophesied would happen. Uh, There was a return, and you have, after the exile, you have some prophets who come um, talking about the need to rebuild the temple, and they ultimately do it. 
they pull it off. They rebuild the temple. Nehemiah, of course, deals with the rebuilding of the walls. And you have some of his contemporaries who are involved uh, with not only the rebuilding of the temple, but also uh, being faithful in terms of how you worship at the temple, guys like Malachi. That temple was ultimately, so that's the second temple. Uh, It was refurbished under King Herod or Herod the Great. There are seven Herods that appear in the New Testament. One of them is Herod the Great, who, of course, was alive during the birth of uh, Christ. In Herod's temple, called the Herodian Temple, some would classify it as a third temple and that it's a total rebuild. Some would say, no, it's just a refurbishment. So so that's why in some of the commentaries you will read, people will talk about a different number of temples in Israel's history. But strictly speaking, there was a Solomonic temple. There was the rebuilt temple that took place after the 70-year exile into Babylon, and that was refurbished, and let's just call it the second temple. Uh, And then there is a third temple that is yet to be built. Of course, the second temple, the Herodian temple, was destroyed just as Jesus had prophesied in 70 AD uh, when Titus Vespucian, the Roman general, came down and uh, they burned it and the gold melted between the rocks and they literally pried apart every single rock so that one stone was not left standing upon another, just as God had prophesied. Uh, The third temple that is yet to be built will be the Tribulation Temple, as it's often called. And the Tribulation Temple will be defiled right in the middle of the Tribulation. I suspect that the construction of it will not start until the Antichrist comes on the scene, because he will come as a man of peace. He will come with signs, wonders, and miracles that the devil will do, false signs, wonders, and miracles. And people will be convinced, yes, we should build this temple. Uh, Most archaeologists now agree that the actual location of the Dome of the Rock is not the physical space that the the third temple will occupy. It's adjacent to it, but it's separate from it. But nonetheless, it being the most disputed piece of property on planet Earth, the Temple Mount, it will take a, a madman from hell with, uh, uh, with you know the false lies that he brings to convince the world to let the Jews build it. That temple will be defiled. It will ultimately be destroyed. And then there'll be a fourth temple built. That's the one that Ezekiel is speaking of. And so during the millennial reign of Christ, on earth, there'll be a brand new temple and God's people will worship in it. And we'll even speak of sacrifices that are done in that temple. Um, unlike Hebrews, that talks about, hey, listen, it's, uh, it's useless to offer any animal sacrifices because they can never remove sin. They'll be done in a memorial sense, much like we celebrate the Lord's Supper. They will be done in the remembrance sense of what uh, Jesus fulfilled on his cross. So God gives um, specific dimensions to the temple in chapter 42, how it should be laid out. There's no temple like this that has ever been built in Israel's history. Uh, There are some people today who deny a future for Israel and so forth. But if all of the prophecies of the Old Testament were literally fulfilled, and they were for the first coming, we can expect the same for the second coming. And so God is yet to build this temple, but he will build it just as his prophet Ezekiel had said. Um, so that's a great question. I really appreciate it. And it's exciting to hear that you're reading the scriptures together as a, as a couple.
All right, let's go to our next question. I think we have a caller who's waiting. We do indeed. Thanks for holding. Oh, oh I think they may have uh, hung up, but they are calling back. So, All right, that's um, fine. Let's so go let's, ahead. let's hit the question from Illinois that came in, and we can put them on hold for a second. All right, very good. Uh, I am a believer, and my husband is not. This listener writes, uh, when it comes to God and praying, church, etc., my husband does not want anything to do with it. What is the best way to handle a situation like this? Well, what might be really helpful to you would be to listen to my Mother's Day sermon uh, that should be posted. Uh, it's online, right, Rick? And so it's the sermon from First Peter 3, 1 through 6, preached on Mother's Day of this year. And the title of the sermon was talking about how to be a godly wife and how to live in the process with a difficult, unbelieving husband. And so Peter speaks, gives very, very practical advice if you are saved. And people are in mixed marriages between a believer and an unbeliever for for different reasons, obviously. Sometimes because uh, they married out of disobedience. And certainly if that were you, if you uh, were a believer, a born-again Christian, and you married your husband out of disobedience, then you did what God said not to do. That would be a violation of Second Corinthians chapter 6 of being unequally yoked. Now, the fact that you are married, it is indeed the will of God for your life. And it might have been God's ultimate will for you to marry that person. And had you held him accountable and said, no, I'm not going to marry an unbeliever. This is not an issue for me. Um, so let's, uh, let's just discontinue that relationship. That, might, that point of accountability might have caused him early on to have taken a hard look at the gospel and maybe would have even led to his conversion. Uh, It might have led to your not marrying him, but it might have led to his conversion. But again, we don't do theology by experience. And very often Christian women will say, well, I married him as an unbeliever hoping to win him and I want him. So you see it worked. Well, uh, yeah, it did. That was the grace of God, but that's not a reason to disobey God's word. So we never do theology by experience. Our experience must always be subject to the authority of Holy Scripture. The reason I bring this up is because if you're trying to win your lost husband and you were a Christian, and I'm, I don't know your circumstances, this one who's called from, um, emailed us here from Illinois, I don't know your circumstances, but if you were a believer and you willfully married out of God's plan, then key to winning your husband is to come clean with God to confess that because you want to be a spirit-filled Christian and you want to be the woman that is described in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. So he talks about how to win um, someone who's disobedient to the word. You could take this passage and you could certainly apply it to a woman who's married to a believer who's out of fellowship. But in its original context, he uses an evangelistic term of winning a lost husband to Christ. And you're going to win him. Peter's primary advice is not just by what you say, but more by the way you live and by your changed life. And sometimes it takes a long time. Uh, And sometimes uh, the person doesn't turn to faith. Uh, Don't give up as long as there's life and breath, there's hope. But, you know, Jesus spoke at the second coming, two will be in the bed, one will be taken, one will be left. And so there will be husband-wife couples, as he described, like a sort of division that can sometimes happen in a home. But the best and wisest thing you can do is to apply the advice in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. With that said, let me just qualify that, 
you know, you're trying to invite your husband to church or to pray or, you know, it's probably not going to work at this point. However, sometimes there are events that a church will hold that an unbeliever will come to, like a picnic or uh, we do events through the year that are designed kind of pre-evangelistically. It might be a Christmas concert uh, that someone will come to just because it's Christmas and even unbelievers tend to like Christmas and they might not appreciate the Christ of Christmas as we do, but still they like Christmas and sometimes they'll come to a Christmas party or a Christmas play or or a church picnic or a church oyster roast or whatever it might be and they see Christian people together and their attitude has changed a little bit. And sometimes that can be a stepping stone towards a conversation. But pray for your husband. If the Lord would lead you, pray and fast for your husband on occasion. But the most important thing for you to do would be to apply First Peter 3, 1 through 6. And if you want just some practical advice and understanding its application and meaning, listen to the Mother's Day sermon. That's where I would start. Great question. Appreciate that lady, the situation she's in. Some are in mixed marriages because after they get married, they get one partner gets saved after their conversion. But whatever the circumstances were, it is the will of God right now for her life. All right. We have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Dr. Brogan, this is Anthony. How are you doing? This hey, morning? Anthony. Thanks for calling. How are you? And how are you doing, Rick? I'm well. How are you doing, buddy? All right. What pastor? question. Uh, I just want you to, if you could say something, you know, um, the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ gave his life for me and you, you know? Yes. I just, he looked down a quarter of time one day and saw me, and he said, you know, I'm going to die for that boy in Port Royal, South Carolina, mm. and it makes it special. Um, when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, can you say or, you know, expand a little bit? You know, we pass up um, a lot of opportunities to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We really pass up. And a lot of times when people say they don't have nothing to do in church, and, I, and I'm looking at it, it can't be true, because there's a lot of things that you can do, you know, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. How important, or could you say, how important it is not to pass up an opportunity to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, yeah, no. Okay. All right. Great. No, it's, uh, it is important, uh, not only in terms of in his local church, but when the church gathers, but also when the church scatters, because God gives us opportunities. You know, the son of man, Jesus said, has come to seek and to save that which is lost. So bottom line, that's why he came to this world. He said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So for following Christ, we'll be fishing for men. And so throughout the week, there's opportunities to be able to reach out to those who are lost all around us. If we care, if we have a compassion, if we see people through the eyes of Christ and God wants us to have that kind of spiritual vision. And if we don't, we need to ask him for it to say, God, I don't really care about lost people. Um, I may say I do, but in practice I don't because I never really reach out or talk to them or I make excuses as to why I shouldn't, never invite someone to church, and I don't really care. Um, So, God, I know that's wrong, and I need you to change that in my life. Uh, And again, people start growing in grace. You know, you're saved by grace, but Peter also says in his second letter, grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ Jesus. 
And so some people have been saved by grace, but they haven't matured or grown very much. So the writer of the Hebrews says it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. And so if we're not really growing in grace, and sometimes there's reasons for that. We're not in a church where the Bible's being open and we're being fed and taught the word of God. And so our hearts have grown kind of stale. And so our care and our compassion, you know, have dwined. Uh, Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. So again, if we're not growing in grace, we're not going to be what God wants us to be. We won't have a compassion when we're scattered. And there's opportunities everywhere. You know, sometimes um, my wife and I are together on a date and we end up talking to someone in just a variety of contexts. You know, we might be in a store, you know, buying a, a wedding gift for someone. And we were in a uh, Best Buy one, one event in the last six months and buying a wedding gift. And we ended up having a conversation with a person in the aisle. And uh, that person was just really hungry. It was just one of those divine appointments that God gave us. And when we got in the car, my wife said what she so often says, it's just not about buying wedding gifts, is it? I said, no. You know, and sometimes we're in a restaurant and you know, the waitress or waiter was sovereignly picked by God uh, for us because God wanted us to somehow initiate with that person on that occasion. And we'll get in the car and she'll say, you know, it's not always about eating out, is it? I said, no. Um, and then when the church is gathered, yes, if we're, if we just come to, to sit and to watch and to observe and we don't serve, then we're not growing Christians. We can't be. Um, now, certainly there are brand new Christians who need to get grounded, but even a new Christian needs to place, find a place to serve. Someone says, well, I don't know my spiritual gift yet. That doesn't matter because with the 16 non-signed gifts in the New Testament, we all share a common responsibility. And so there's something you can do. And as you start serving God in some capacity, however small it may be, God will continue to work and move in your life. But if you just go to a church and you don't serve anywhere, I can tell you right now, you're not a growing Christian. It's impossible to be because God calls his people to serve when the church is gathered. So there are two realms when the church is gathered and when the church is scattered. And, and certainly when it's scattered, it's not purely evangelistic. There are spiritual gifts that we have as we grow in grace that begin to manifest themselves and strengths in our life. And if you're not sure what your spiritual gift is, go to search those scriptures, all one word, search the scriptures.org. I wrote a spiritual gifts test, 128 questions take you about 30 minutes to complete the test. Don't answer it like you would like the answer to be, but as it actually is. It may be someone who even knows you really, really well, your spouse if you're married. Have them take it like they were you and let them see how you would score. That might be a starting place um, in terms of getting you moving in the right direction. Great question. Let's go to the next call. Can I put yeah. in a plug okay. for my yeah, yeah, Sunday yeah. school class? Sure. Since uh, Anthony brought up this question, we just started this past Sunday our New study in Romans 12, exclusively one chapter, yeah. and uh, we'll probably still be there by the time you reach Romans yeah, 12. But, right. uh, I mean, that very issue is addressed right here in the very beginning where Paul is talking about the mercies of God. And in verse 3, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone to think not more highly of themselves. And then he proceeds to go and lay out all these gifts that he's mm. given. And if he's given you a gift, he, he expects you to employ it. That's and, right. And, and it, it's assumed 
Rick, just by this statement you've made, that it's not impossible to figure out what it is. I mean, for Peter to directly command us, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. There's an assumption you can figure out what your gift is. And so, yeah, we, we should do it. So Rick has an ABF, an adult Bible fellowship. They're kind of churches within the church. And if a church is healthy, it will grow. And as it grows larger, it may seem impersonal, but God gave us a principle within the Bible that there should be kind of like churches within the church. And we accomplish that. You can do it in a lot of different ways through ABFs. And so Rick's got a great ABF if you're looking for a place to go and our church home, come to Community Bible Church, the Buford campus. And there's one in Bluffton as well that meets on Sunday at the Bridge Center. If you're in the Bluffton Hilton Head area, we also have a campus um, in Bluffton right at the Bridge Center, right before the entrance on to the Hilton Head Island. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hello, Dr. Brogy. Hey, thanks for calling today. I have a soul winning question. It's a two-part question. Okay. The first part is a Bible teaching that I never heard before. Uh, What the man was saying, or the comment he made was that when when Paul was at the Oropagus and he was soul winning, trying to soul win among these different philosophies. And then after that, he was walking to the next place he went to. And the next, and, and as he was thinking about the Oropagus, he was thinking to himself that that wasn't very effective. And so apparently this next letter he wrote is the one where he said, I claim to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus. And so his argument seemed to be that uh, trying to soul win with people using philosophical arguments or understanding their position as opposed to just saying, here's the gospel, you know, that's all I'm going to tell you. I'm not going to try and reason with you or uh, talk to you about your position. So can you respond to that? Yeah, well, let me just say, I think that's nonsense. Um, I just think that that's sheer nonsense uh, that, and he's read into the scripture, something that's not there. Uh, Paul, you know, on Mars Hill, and I stood on Mars Hill in in March, and it's like a, it's like a big boulder. I don't know how else to describe it. And as you stand there behind him is, you know, the Acropolis, that raised uh, place where you had the Parthenon and false temples. And and to the right of him was the Agora, the marketplace where all the business transactions took place. And on the other side of him was the center of government. So you had government, business, and the philosophical religious world all surrounding Mars Hill. And of course, he goes up there and Athens is a place that is covered over with gods, false gods. They said it was easier to find a god than it was to find an individual. I mean, thousands of statues and gods and goddesses and you you name it. And of course, Paul keys off of one of their statues that just in case they missed somebody and didn't want to offend some god, they said to an unknown god. And so Paul takes that. And it's not a philosophical argument, number one. It's a biblical argument that he gives. Um, He appeals to what we call general revelation. 
And so he says, uh, I found an altar to an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temple in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And so he separates the creation from the creator. That's Romans one. He appeals to what's called general revelation that all men have a knowledge of God. And it's only as we suppress that knowledge that we worship the creation as they were doing all over Athens instead of the creator God. So he goes back to general revelation, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he preaches the gospel. Understand that, you know, just because his whole sermon is not detailed, uh, doesn't mean that he didn't preach the gospel. It's not even an inference. It's a clear implication, an undisputable implication that he preached the dead death, burial and resurrection of Christ because, um, he goes on and he says, you know what, you know, God's overlooked the times of ignorance. He's declared to all men everywhere that they should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And so, again, Paul's whole sermons are not detailed. They're just briefly summarized with the key points that God wants us to get. If, if Paul, you know, preached in an area for three hours and the whole sermon was dictated and, and written into the text of Scripture, you know, it would add, you know, a hundred pages to our Bible. And so, you know, God sometimes summarizes truth for us to help us to understand the highlights that he doesn't want us to miss. But the fact that he preached the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ— is clear from the response that takes place. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. Some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Aragabite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with him. So he gets uh, three different responses. Some sneer, you know, this is a bunch of garbage. They're just, you know, it's a, it's a word that means to kind of grit your teeth. Um, others said, well, you know, it's interesting. We'll think about this. We'll, we'll listen to you some more, Paul. And some believed. Uh, they were converted. And so for some to have believed to have been converted, there's a non-negotiable to genuine faith. Uh, to be counted as a true believer, then Romans 1, 16 says you have to hear the gospel. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So, you know, I, I don't buy that for a second. But what I do learn from this sermon is that there are different approaches in evangelism in terms of how you get to the gospel sometimes. So how Jesus got to the gospel with the Samaritan woman who had very little knowledge of scripture was far different from the way he got to the gospel with Nicodemus, who is a ruler in Israel. And he was a teacher of the scriptures. He appealed to mosaic, to the Torah, to, you know, numbers 21, something the Samaritan woman probably had never read. So Paul meets people where they are at in Acts 13. The way he preaches to the Jews is so far different from the way he preaches to these downright pagans on Acts 17, but he ultimately gets to the gospel. And so, um, anyway, so 
Good question. All right, very good. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. We did have a dictated questioner. Uh, listener would like to know if you've ever heard of the group Toby Mac, and is it a good Christian group to listen to? I probably should know, but I don't know. So, um, uh, may- have you heard the song City on a Hill? Uh, if you hum a few bars, right <laughs> no. now, I, I might know it, but, but I, I, yeah, I probably have, but, um, I, I just don't know. My, now, if you ask my wife, she probably could tell you cause she's more in tune with a lot of the contemporary Christian music and what's good and maybe what's not so good. Um, I like sovereign grace ministries. If someone says, Hey, what do you like to listen to? I really like sovereign grace ministries. It's contemporary, it's new stuff, but it's rich in theology rich in um, biblical truth and just really well put together. Um, so uh, if this person is local, tell them to call the church and they can talk to our pastor of music ministries, ask for Pastor Matt, and he can answer the question he would know. So let's go to the next one. We still had that one from Illinois that we never got to. So uh, let's go back to that. Did we ever finish it? We did. Oh, we did finish it. You're right. We did. We okay. Did. Yeah, Good. that's right. Our next listener is actually writing us from Massachusetts. Okay. He says he's been listening to you for several years, really enjoyed your expos- exposition of the scriptures and holding true to the church truth. And... Um, he is uh, wondering if you have any recommendations for churches in the area similar to Community Bible uh, in, as far as the uh, teaching goes. He's about an hour um, and a half southeast of Worcester and 45 minutes north of Providence, Rhode Island, and he is either uh, a non-Calvinistic or is looking for a non-Calvinistic uh, church. Well, uh, let me just say there's some, as you look for a church, there's some non-negotiables. Obviously, you can go online, you can look at their doctrinal statement, and you want to see what they say they believe. You look for the non-negotiables, like the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. And again, you look for words like that or verbal plenary inspiration, because there will be websites where someone says, well, we believe the Bible is inspired, but they have a different definition of inspiration than the one that Christ taught us. So you want to look for some pastor who says every single word is inspired, the virgin birth, the virgin conception, the physical resurrection, that he didn't spiritually rise from the dead, but actually that he will physically come again. Uh, People may differ on the timing of events or how the events will unfold, but all true born-again Christians do believe that he is actually literally physically coming again, that salvation is not earned, it's by grace alone through faith alone, and that the Scripture alone is our final authority in the matters of all beliefs. So there are churches in New England like that, um, that you can maybe look for some of those component things. Now, granted, there is a famine in the land for the word of God, and it's very sad. And so we broadcast in Maine and New Hampshire and Massachusetts and Connecticut and Rhode Island through different radio stations. And and I, on a regular basis, get, you know, correspondence from those places where people are just really like frustrated. And what I tell them is, listen, find the best church you can, support the pastor, pray for him, encourage him, serve there. Find the best Bible-believing church you can. It may not be what you would ideally like to see, 
but get in the best one you can and get behind it. Um, there may be some Calvinistic churches that, you know, you may not necessarily embrace in terms of all of their teaching on uh, their view of election might be different from from yours. But, you know, I wouldn't less necessarily that, let that be a stumbling block to my, you know, being a participant of that church. Uh, John Piper is a five point Calvinist. He believes in the doctrine of, say, of limited atonement. Do I believe in that? No. But if I were living in his section of the country, I would consider maybe going to Bethlehem Baptist. I, I know he's not the senior pastor there. He's pastor emeritus or whatever now. But, um, but I wouldn't necessarily let that stop me from attending that church. Um, so you got to weigh those factors and see what's important and, uh, and go from there. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980. And we do have a listener who's calling. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hello, Dr. Brogy. Hey, good morning. How can I help? Uh, I called a minute ago about the Rapidish. Oh, yeah, you, you, had a, you had a part two maybe to that. Go ahead. <laughs> yes, in the context of... Um, it being a legitimate Bible teaching to uh, reason with people from where they're coming from, because I think Paul quoted some of their philosophers in order to explain the gospel to them. Yes. Um, in, in that context, a man made a comment that even though the Bible doesn't show us examples of ever trying to witness to an atheist, that... Um, that was not a common philosophy of the day, but since it's a common philosophy of our day, the example of the Oropagus would support the notion of trying to witness to atheists in our time. Can you respond to that? Well, yeah, that's a good good question. Um, again, you know, biblically speaking, there are no atheists. So a man may say with his lips, I don't believe there's a God. He does. He's just a liar. He's just lying. What he, He's lying against himself, and he's lying to God, because the Bible teaches there is no such thing as an atheist. That's why God devotes you know one half of one verse quoted twice in the Bible in Psalm 15, Psalm 50, in our English Bibles anyway. The order is different in other languages, but uh, the fool has said in his heart, uh, there's no God. And so God assumes that people have a belief in the one true God. Now, he will appeal to that in Scripture. And so you really have Paul doing that in Acts 17 on Mars Hill, which is a translation of the word Ariacobus, um, as the King James puts it. And so he is appealing to what man knows to be true. So Paul in Romans 1 will say, even of utter pagans who had turned uh, to worshiping the creation rather than the creator, that since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. What is he doing? He's appealing to general revelation. He's reminding us that all men have a knowledge of God and his fingerprints are all over the creation. Um, You see uh, Paul in Acts 14 
Um, let me just turn there for a second. He talks about God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. That's general revelation, the creation. And in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations, ethnos or ethnoi here, plural, all, all, all the various you know, Gentile nations of the world to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So general revelation usually is described on three levels, the creation, the conscience, and the care of God on this world. So in creation, we see God's fingerprints and our conscience. We feel his presence. Paul will argue in Romans two fifteen that people have a knowledge of God and that Gentiles who don't have the law, have never read the Bible, to put it in modern vernacular, have evidence of the law of God written in their hearts, their conscience either approving or disapproving of what they've done. Um, so you can travel to different parts of the world where people have never even heard the name of Jesus. When I was in India a couple months ago, I met people who had never heard Jesus' name. Who's Jesus? One guy asked me if Jesus was the name of some kind of a food. I mean, some people who know zero, but you start with what they do know. They know there's a God. They know through creation, through conscience, and through his general care. But again, general revelation should ultimately be a springboard to specific revelation, assuming God gives us that opportunity. And there is a time to withhold the gospel pearl. And there's a biblical principle that light responded to brings more light. And so in Acts 10, where you have Cornelius, who is not saved, um, yet he's responding to everything he knows to respond to. But he's not yet born again in modern vernacular. And we know that from Acts 11, because when Peter goes and returns to Jerusalem and gives a report to the Jerusalem elders, he reminds them that he was saved that day. But he responded to the light that he had, and so God gave him more light. Sometimes God withholds the gospel because a man will not respond to the light that he has. And so God calls us to practice what he practices. And there are times to to withhold the gospel pearl when there's an utter disdain for holy things. But if we can, we want to move from general revelation to the preaching of the gospel because general revelation can't save a person. A knowledge that there is a God is not enough to save you. That's not the kind of faith, well, I believe in God. No, it has to go past just a knowledge of God and creation and conscience to a knowledge of his son, uh, to the revelation of the cross. So... Anyway, I hope that helps. Let's go to the next live caller who's waiting patiently. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Uh, Good morning, Pastor Brogan. and good morning, Rick. Um, I have a question for you. Uh, We moved into a a home about four years ago, and it it used to be owned by a Greek Orthodox priest. And uh, we've been experiencing uh, demonic activity off and on in 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 the home, and it has become more... Um, more violent as as time goes on. Um, and I was wondering, I, I talked to my pastor about it, and he told me to plead the blood of Jesus Christ, and I I didn't ask him to expound on it. I should have. But I was calling you to find out if, if, if you can explain that to me, if you can expound on that, and, and what we can do, or do we just need to move? Oh, well, it's a, it's a good question. Um, there's uh, basically two positions in evangelicalism. You'll meet some, some people who say there's no such thing. 
no such thing at all in terms of demonic activity in a place, in a locale, in a physical object. Um, I, I tend to differ with that. And those who usually teach that are those who, for the most part, tend not to believe that, you know, demons can even possess people in our day. They view that, well, that happened back in Bible days, but it doesn't happen today. Well, they, they haven't traveled much, and they haven't seen much in terms of, you know, some of the things that are happening in other cultures of the world and are beginning to be introduced to our own nation and our own culture. There was this kid a few weeks ago who, you know, committed um, a, a shooting. I think he wanted to take out probably hundreds of people. At least he had the ammunition for it. And he was uh, exploring this website called, I think, Slim Man, if I remember the name correctly. And as I heard it described, maybe it was not what the originators intended for it to be initially. But as I heard it described, my thought is, man, that's the demonic realm. That, that kid entered into the demonic realm. And of course, you know, the thief comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal. But Jesus said, I've come that you can have life and have it more abundantly. And so when people enter into the demonic realm, they enter into the realm of evil. And we're seeing that more and more in our country. There's an appetite more and more, you know, the teenage werewolf kind of mentality, uh, this psychic and people exploring that and getting curious with things that God says, don't walk into that. Don't go down that road because it's a road of evil. And so there are people who have encountered spiritual phenomenon uh, due to the fact that there are, say, objects that have been used in the demonic realm. And so Paul, um, you know, talks about that in one of his sermons to the church at Ephesus in Acts 18, and he told them to destroy those objects. I'm not saying you should burn down your house or anything, but I, I do think that your pastor's advice was not far-fetched, that we don't have to be scared of the devil and scared of the demonic realm. But on the other hand, we should be respectful, uh, just like even Michael the archangel, um, he in the authority in the name of Christ rebuked the devil. Didn't do it out of his own authority, but it did it over the one who's over all. And as Christians, we should do the same. Uh, God has given us authority to exercise and we need to exercise it in faith. And so if you're home, and again, I, I don't know anything about this Greek Orthodox priest. Um, certainly there's a lot of religious Greek Orthodox priests who are lost, the Orthodox Church, for the most part, have lost the gospel. But, you know, when I go to Eastern Europe, while most of the Orthodox um, leadership are unbelievers, not all of them are. There are some believing, born-again Orthodox, uh, Ukrainian Orthodox, say, in that country, or Russian Orthodox. But they're far and few between. In fact, it appears the head of the Russian Orthodox Church is, well, he used to work for the KGB, uh, he was a professed communist, and Putin uh, appointed him as head of the Russian Orthodox Church. So there are certainly lost people who are in it. It's possible that this man was involved in the demonic realm. There's a lot of iconic worship, the worship of icons in, in this. So exercise your authority 
you know, God, you've given us this home. This is your home. We come against any evil that has been done here. And in the name of Christ, we ask your blessing over it for any powers of the demonic realm that have operated in these walls to be gone in Jesus' name. And you walk in faith and you move on. Uh, so that that's what I would suggest. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We do have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Good morning. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line. Uh, good morning, Pastor Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. I have actually two questions They along the same lines. The first one is, uh, I read online where Franklin Graham spoke to Family Research Council, uh, Watchmen on the Wall, and some have criticized him on his message where he he said that God hates, I guess he quotes from Revelation, saying God hates cowards. And he's referring to pastors who refuse to speak out against homosexuality, same-sex marriage, abortion, etc. Uh, one pastor said that he thinks it's a slippery slope and he, he says he knows Franklin Graham's probably not calling a person a coward, saying it's cowardice, but he thinks that it's a slippery slope that you could actually, God could hate people. I don't think that's the issue, but I was just wondering what you uh, thought of that. Well, it's a, it's a good question. Um, certainly, you know, God describes the cowardly. Uh, in the Revelation, uh, along with those who love lying, not those who lie, but those who love it, uh, those who um, indeed are immoral and murderers and so forth. He describes them as lost in being outside of the realm of the grace of God. Uh, God hates sin. Uh, There are things that God hates. Um, Malachi 2.16, for instance, says, I, the God of Israel, hate divorce. So there are things that God hates, but he indeed loves sinners. And God in his justice, probably with a tear in his eye, if I can use that metaphor, because obviously the father doesn't have a physical body, um, but he will condemn people to any place of eternal retribution. And that's the reality of it. Now, I I have a great amount of respect for Franklin Graham. I just, I, I appreciate the guy to death because he's he's not backing down, and um, maybe he, maybe his choice of words were not the best in some people's minds, but the fact is is that there's a lot of pastors who are cowardly because they're not born again, and so they're people likers. They want people to like them, and they want to like people, uh, and they don't want to offend anyone. And so you know this is a huge problem in evangelicalism, and it's not dissipating, it's growing, and it's accelerating, because we want the world to like us, and we think the way to win the world is to get the world's favor, and it's not our likeness to the world, but our distinctiveness from the world that God uses to bring people to genuine faith and repentance. So, you know, this has become an issue, and he's probably got guys like Andy Stanley in mind who, you know, did his um, classic illustration in April of 2012, you know, when Gracie meets Truthy. And he talks about two homosexual men in his church 
who wanted to serve on one of the campuses. And this is not just like some off-the-cuff sermon illustration. He's got a you know a little magnetic board up there, and he puts little figures up there, and he, he thought it through. And um, But one of them was still married. And so he says, because you're, this person was still married, that for him to be living with his homosexual partner is adultery because he's still married. And so he calls, you know, this extramarital relationship ad- adultery, but never calls homosexuality sin. And of course, he goes on the illustration where I guess he divorces his partner and his wife, whom he divorced, gets remarried. And he talks about how they all are together in church at a wonderful Christmas service and sitting together, the two homosexual partners and the wife with her new husband. And he talks about, you know, basically these new composite families that we have. And of course, you know, people come unglued in evangelicalism and say, you didn't really mean that, did you? And Al Mohler, you know, wrote him and said, you know, please clarify what you mean. And he didn't. And he hasn't. And so to me, that's cowardly. When the Southern Baptist Convention with some backbone last week came out and they wrote, you know, under Denny Burke, who's a great man, a great man, you know, he wrote a resolution with a couple of other people that was presented to the floor, which passed on dealing with the transgender issue. Andy Stanley criticized it. What business does he have criticizing any evil? Um, But we live in a day of cowardly preachers who are afraid to tell the truth because we want them, we want to be liked. And so, you know, right now at his church, he doesn't perform the baptisms himself, but at his church, there are homosexuals who are being baptized with their partner standing by looking on. Look, this is, this is an evil. This is an evil, and we need to stand up as evangelicals. We are, you know, people say, well, what's the big deal? You know, LGBT, the T, of course, is for a transgender. And what they basically say is your sex is not determined between your legs, but between your ears. That, you know, you can have one kind of, you know, physical sex organ, but in your head think you're another kind of sex or you're between, you know, this is just nonsense and this is evil and we need to speak up. And you say, what difference does it make? Because right now in several states, a young man can go into a young lady's locker room because he's transgender and they can use different restrooms. And this is beginning to spread to other states. A number of states have already adopted it as law. And, you know, our president, our president, you know, is on this morning's news, wants to, you know, make some new discriminatory issues over this. There's some legi- by executive order, because there's some legislation that's stuck in committee right now that people want to bring out, but they're unable to. Uh, that would make, you know, some guy shows up, a guy in a dress, and you don't hire him. They want to make that against the law. Christian people, man, we need to wake up. We need to speak up. The most important thing we can do is share the gospel, because that's the only thing that's going to change this world, is the preaching of the gospel. Well, we're out of time, didn't get to all the calls, certainly not to many dictated questions, but... God willing, there's always another day. Have a good day. Walk with Christ.